<laughs> Every invite. Yes, I'll do it. I'll do it. Thank you, Zachariah, for reading for us this morning. Hey, guys. Join me in the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, verses 7 through 17. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, and the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Will. I was talking with some uh, friends yesterday, and they were telling me about this college basketball tradition at Taylor University. I don't know if you've heard about this. This is uh, They do this every... The, fr- the final Friday of every fall semester, they, th- they do this tradition where they all, everybody comes to the home, the home basketball game, the end of that semester. And, you know, these are crazy college students, so they're wearing, like, gorilla outfits, and some of them are dressed as Elvis. Some of them has their uh, face painted and their, their chest painted, and it's just, the, the, the place is packed, packed to the brim. But the tradition is called Silent Night. And as it goes, is right after warm-ups, everyone in the, in the gym goes quiet. Not a sound, there's not music playing, and the game starts, tip-off starts, and it's eerily quiet. All you can hear is the bouncing of the ball, the squeaking of the shoes. Anytime the home team, Taylor University, scores, everyone in the crowd does this kind of silent hand gesture. They kind of like do jazz hands for a second. And it's just eerie. I mean, can you imagine how unnerving it would be? Place is packed with people, not a sound, until the 10th point. When the home team scores the 10th point, the place erupts. And like, you know, college students just like losing their minds, screaming, jumping up and down, pandemonium, eerie, quiet, instant insanity. And uh, the video that I saw um, from last year, they stormed the court. They, like a swarm of bees, they just flooded the court, jumping up and down, 
you would think they'd won the national championship. It's 10 points into the first quarter. And it's just, uh, you know, we were talking about this, and I had no idea this was a phenomenon out there that existed. And I thought that would be a great tradition to start to incorporate at Redeemer, where 10 minutes into the sermon, just silence. And then at the 10-minute mark, just pandemonium. But, um, but here's why I, was, why, why I was bringing that up, because imagine being on that team, being on the home team, and you're out there and you're playing the game, and, and, and just the, the anticipation of that eruption is just loaded into the moment. Everybody's on the edge of their seats waiting for this big moment, and you're the player, and you hit the bucket for the 10th point, and it doesn't happen. It's just more silence. And you go back on defense, and you're kind of confused. You're checking the scoreboard and thinking maybe something's wrong. Maybe there's a mistake. And then you keep playing the game, and more buckets are scored, and there's still no big moment like this. And the game keeps going on, and you would, you would go from excitement and anticipation to confusion to eventually frustration and maybe even, like, feeling demoralized where you're like, what are we doing? What, what's, ha- what's happening? That's the feeling that Zechariah's original audience was feeling. You know, we, we are, we're going to spend the summer working our way through the book of Zechariah, and one of the reasons why we're doing this is because, we, we, as we talked about last week, is because those people back then share a lot in common with us today. And one of the things that they were feeling back then was this huge sense of failed expectation. Here's why. People of Israel had been invaded by this foreign army called Babylon, and they had been taken captive, and it was traumatized, and it was terrible. But in the midst of that, God had promised them something through this guy named Jeremiah. I included it in your bulletin there, but here's what Jeremiah said. He says, fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Jacob is another name for um, his people, people of Israel. He's talking to his people, saying, fear, don't be afraid declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make them afraid. And so God had promised, hey, even though you've been traumatized, even though you've been taken away to this foreign city, you're going to return to your own land. The kingdom of God will come You will experience fullness. You will have quiet. You will be at ease. You will have rest. And it's just this loaded with anticipation, waiting for that moment. And miraculously, God's people do return from Babylon. They do come back to their land. And by the time Zechariah is talking and sending this message, they've been back for about 17 years, 18 years. And they're looking around and saying, this is not what I thought it was going to be. It's like the stands are quiet. We came back expecting flourishing and rest and peace, and they're struggling, and they're they're experiencing internal conflict. They're socially polarized and fragmented. There's international conflict. There's financial hardship. They're struggling. They're looking around and looking at God and saying, hey, you talked this big game, and it seems like you overpromised and underdelivered. So what do they do with their failed expectations? And what do we do with our failed expectations as we live our lives and realize, man, this is not the the life I thought I was going to get. I thought following Jesus was going to 
be more than this, into their failed expectations, into our failed expectations comes Zechariah. He's going to show us in this passage three things. This is, what, this is what we need with our failed expectations. Number one, we need to be honest. Number two, we need to behold God. And number three, we need to believe him. So those are the three things I want to look at with you for the rest of our time. Be honest, behold God, believe him. First, what do I mean by... Um, be honest. Well, to get at that, we need, we need to kind of jump into this passage. And, and, and if you were here last week, like I said, the book of Zechariah starts to get weird. And here's where it starts to get weird, because Zechariah starts to have these eight nighttime visions. You can see that in, in, in verse 8. I saw in the night. These are almost like dreams. And just like your dreams, these visions are, are dreamlike and trippy and weird and they kind of blend one into the next and the imagery doesn't seem to make sense and it's not linear. It's kind of like he went down to sleep one night and he finds himself in the middle of watching like some artsy French movie where it's like, what? I don't even know what's happening anymore. This doesn't even make sense. But this is not, these are not dreams that are generating from his own mind because he ate some weird meal the night before. As you can see in verse 7, this is the word of the Lord that comes to him. And so here's this first vision that he gets. And in verse 8, he sees this man riding on a red horse, and behind this rider are all of these other horses on riders, and it says that they are standing among the myrtle trees. They're kind of hiding and chilling out amongst all of these bushes and all these trees, kind of being incognito and kind of being a little covert. And, and the reason why, as you find out in verse 10, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. These are like angelic military scouts that are on a surveillance mission. They're out and they're doing recon and they're gathering intel and they come back to report what they have seen out in the world. And, and here's what they see in verse 11. We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. They come back, and they're like, all the nations are chilling. They're at rest. They're at ease. It's like a kind of vision of world peace. And rather than that being this thing that triggers excitement and relief, what it triggers is lament. The, uh, in verse 12, the man who's on this red horse, who's this angel of the Lord, he cries out to God, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem in the cities of Judah? Here's what's going on. The, the, here's this report that everyone else, the nations are chilling. You know, their, their feet are kicked up. They're in hammocks. They're drinking Mai Tais. And God's people are struggling suffering, and we, they're the ones that were promised the rest, and everyone else seems to be experiencing rest. And so this angel looks at God and says, how long? How long are you going to hold out on us? You said through Jeremiah we would be in captivity for 70 years. Well, guess what? 70 years is about up, and we're back, and this is terrible, and we're looking around, and this is not Great, how long are you going to withhold mercy from us and from your people? Because we, we, we are struggling and this doesn't seem like there's any end in sight. 
And here's what I want you to notice. that this is, this is a way of interacting with God that is not sanitized. There's no kind of fake churchy smile in the midst of this. This is a raw, pre-processed cry. How long? How long are you going to hold out on us? And what I, what I also want you to notice, as honest as this angel is, that what is the Lord's response? He doesn't clap back at him and say, oh, my God, do you have any idea who you are talking to? I am God. How dare you take that disrespectful tone with me? No. He says in verse 13, the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Here's what I want you to see. There is freedom and there is an invitation here to be honest. That the rest that is offered does not come through grit and resignation and willpower. It comes through honesty. That the first thing of when you have failed expectation, the first, the first thing is to admit that you have failed expectations and to give yourself permission to name it. God, this is crushing. This is disappointing. Where were you when this happened? How could you have let this happen? Now, you might be the kind of person that is just naturally, that you kind of feel the freedom to be honest like that. You feel the freedom to pray like that maybe even. A lot of religious people tend to be uncomfortable with this because it feels wrong. It feels like we're accusing God of something. It feels like it's, uh, we're not allowed to do that. We, like, it feels like the, the Christian response, the religious response, is when hardship happens, we look at God and we smile and we say, thank you, can I have another? And yet, um, that's not what we see all throughout the Bible. In fact, that's not what we see throughout church history. In fact, if you look at our, one of our good friends, um, C.S. Lewis, I included this little quote in, at the beginning of your bulletin that in his book, um, A Grief Observed, he wrote this book after his wife died from cancer. And here's what he writes. I'm going to read it to you. He says, when you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Now, that level of honesty feels jarring to us, right? Because it just feels like, ugh, can he say that? Are we allowed to talk like that? That it feels like God's slamming the door in our face when we come to him? And yet, here's the thing. Faith has to begin with honesty. All throughout the Bible, you see these cries of honest, people bringing their honest selves before the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you withhold your mercy from me? How long will you turn your face away from me? God wants you to be honest, to show up with your real selves. Rest comes, but it only comes on the far side of honesty about your disappointment. 
Rest only comes on the far side of your honesty about your disappointment. It doesn't come through grit, willpower, resignation. Nowhere in the Bible is this fake it till you make it mentality. It's an invitation to be honest. So that's the first thing. What do you do with your failed expectations? You be honest about them. And even maybe dare to bring them before the Lord. Here's the second thing that we see is that it's not just this invitation to be honest, but to also behold God, meaning to look at him as he has actually revealed himself. Because into this disappointment, into this failed expectation, God, like it said in verse 13, he gives these gracious and comforting words. And and here's what they are. Here's what these gracious and comforting words are. Look at verse 14. God says, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. These are the the gracious and comforting words. God says, here's what I want you to know about me. I am exceedingly jealous and I am exceedingly angry. Now, of all of the attributes of God, those are the two that modern people have the biggest problem with. God is jealous? It's, I mean, if, you, would never, you would never use that as a good thing. If you were introducing somebody and tell, or telling somebody about your new boyfriend, you would never say, they are so awesome. I love their family. They are so funny. They are super jealous. And that'd be like a good thing. In fact, you know, Richard Dawkins, who's this famous um, atheist, he's written a lot of books. Um, He he wrote a book a number of years ago called The God Delusion. Here's, Here's what he says in this book. He says, quote, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant figure in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. Now, that might resonate with you. That might be your problem with the God of the Bible as well. In fact, you know, I, I learned this week that this was, this was Oprah's problem with um, the God of the Bible. This is why she does not embrace Christianity. When she was in her late 20s, she went to a church, and she heard some preacher stand up and say that God is this jealous God, and she thought, that doesn't feel right. That feel, why would God be jealous? Seems like he's like this moody insecure teenager and like it's just like like I don't that I'm out that doesn't feel right and so not only does God say I'm exceedingly jealous he then says I'm exceedingly angry and so now you start having these images of like the fire and brimstone the uh, you know sinners in the hands of an angry God and it just feels like everything about this picture is is what modern people are allergic to why would this be gracious and comforting words to know, for God to say, here's what I want you to know about me. Look at me, behold me, I'm really jealous, I'm really angry. Maybe think of it like this. This may be a helpful way to think about it. Uh, This past week I watched a movie with my boy Reed here, my son, and uh, we watched the movie um, The Mitchells versus the Machines. I don't know if you've seen this. It's like a cartoony, Pixar-y kind of thing about this Suburban family, there's a mom and a dad and a, and a daughter and a son, and they are uh, uh, taking the daughter away uh, 
to college. This is kind of the last family road trip before she goes off to college. And as they are en route to drop her off and they're going to all these spots and having all these kind of adventures, there's this robot uprising. All these robots uh, take over the world and capture all of humanity and, and they're the only family that's left alive to do anything about it. And towards the end of the movie, the family realizes, okay, we've got to infiltrate the robot headquarters in order to shut down the operating system. And as they're trying to sneak into the headquarters, the robots detect them and they, and they catch them and then they capture them and they take the children and they whisk them away to these like kind of jail cell-like things. And they've, they've got the mom kind of restrained. They've got, she's got two robots holding her back. And the son, as he's being kind of locked away in this prison, he's whimpering and he's crying, Mom, 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 help. And you see the, kind of, the camera kind of zooms in on her face, and she looks up, and something inside of her snaps, and like the mama bear comes out. And she breaks free from the robots and goes on this rampage of just smashing robots' heads together and just wrecking all of the robots. And she's, like, chasing them down, and the robots are fleeing in terror because, like, oh, my goodness, we've upset the mom. And, like, it's, it's this scene that you can find the, this little clip on YouTube. The name of the clip is, quote, an angry mom can save the world. And um, when I saw that, I was like, that is a great picture of this, this idea of God's jealousy and his anger. Because when we hear those words, jealous, anger, it feels synonymous with envy. It feels like uh, self-centered. It feels like he's trigger happy, that he's kind of, God's emotionally unstable. That there's this thing that comes out of him because he has this deficit. He has this need inside of him. And so he feels jealous and he's angry. But that it's, his jealousy and his anger is not coming from the deficit in him. It is coming from an excess in him. It is an aspect of his love. That's what love does. When something is threatening the one that you love, something gets activated inside of you. This protective, fierce, mama bear, papa bear instinct. That's jealousy. That's love for your people to the point where you are going to step in and protect them. That's why it's gracious and comforting. Because you have to remember, these people, the people of Israel, when they were invaded by these foreign armies, they were brutalized. Uh, last week after uh, church, one of our members, Brad Harriman, I saw him somewhere over here. I thought I saw him. Anyway, not to, there he is, not to highlight him. I told him I'd, I told him I'd highlight him. He can give a little speech in the middle of the uh, sermon. <laughs> Just joking. But he was telling me about this podcast that he's been listening to called Hardcore History. Maybe you've heard about it before. But Hardcore History did a couple of um, episodes, three episodes. They're like eight hours long each on this particular period of history of like the 500s, 600s BC about Persians and Babylonians and the uh, Assyrians. And they do this deep dive in this podcast and it shows how atrocious these armies treated people. That when they invaded another territory, they didn't just politely escort people back to their homeland. I mean, it was like horrific, unspeakable war crimes. And so here you have the people of Israel, and they have been traumatized. They have, under, they have seen things that were horrific, things that I can't even say from up front because it's so cruel and, and disgusting and over the top. 
And they have experienced this, and now they have God saying, look at me. I want you to know I see it all. None of it has escaped my purview. I see it all, and none of it is going to go unchecked. I am jealous for you, and it has aroused my anger for them that they would treat you like this. It's all going to be made right. All the wrongs will be made right. Now, you might see why that would be gracious, why that might be comforting. When you're in this powerless, defenseless position, and you have a God who starts to go into mama bear mode. You know, as modern and sophisticated people, this is the part of God we don't like. We want to get rid of this. It feels like for God to be angry, it feels like that's, that's icky. We want God to be just kind of be this nice grandfather. And here's what I want you to say. It is, our, it is the source of our comfort that God is angry, that God would look out at atrocities that are being done to people that he loves and for him to say, this is not okay, and I am going to do something about it. If you have a God that can look at the atrocities of the world and can look upon them with indifference, that is not a God worth worshiping. If your God can be indifferent about someone walking into an elementary school and massacring children, that's not a God worth worshiping. The God of the Bible says, I I am grieved over it, I am not okay with it, and I'm going to do something about it someday, one day. That's this gracious, this invitation, this comfort to know and to behold the God as he has revealed himself. So here's the last thing. Be honest, behold God, and then lastly, briefly, believe him. Believe him. Because here are these people, remember, they're disappointed, they're discouraged, and it says that God, um, in verse 16, God says, I, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Meaning, I, I have not just watched my people from a distance, but I've showed up personally, and I've showed up with mercy, not with vengeance. And that's why he starts listing out all these promises or these three promises kind of staccato-like at the end. Maybe you saw it, verse 16. He says, my house shall be built in it, meaning the temple will be restored. Verse 16, he says, the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem, which means our whole city is going to be restored. And then here's the last promise, 17. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And it's this promise of comfort, of rest, prosperity. And so here are these people and they are promised these big visions of this big kingdom with this new temple and a new city and with fine, with rest. These are these big, glorious, beautiful visions that they've been promised and yet in the present tense, they are struggling, they're suffering, and they're leaning forward, trusting and believing that this is the case. It is this invitation to believe his promises. And you think, well, that's not too different from us today because we likewise are, have been promised this glorious kingdom to come, this vision of this temple and a new city and renewed world, and we're living in our day-to-day -day life with struggle and doubt and frustration and failed expectations and exhaustion and 
We, like them, are leaning forward trying to believe this promise, but here's the thing. How, how can you believe that he's legit? How can you believe that he's going to make good on these promises, especially when you look around your actual life and you're like, this doesn't feel anything like that. Here's how you can believe. Centuries after this crazy, trippy vision, Jesus shows up, and he says, one of the first things out of his mouth is that the kingdom is at hand. Meaning, when he arrives, he says, with my arrival is the arrival of this kingdom. This beginning of this kingdom that was promised. And then he goes around and he starts saying crazy stuff like, oh, by the way, I'm the temple. And people are like, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm the temple. You tear this down, in three days it's going to pop right back up again. And if the temple was this place where you actually encountered God's presence, God's saying, well, the, the, the real temple is here. God's presence is actually here now. Then he went around and says things like, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the source of rest. Come to me and I will give you rest. And so this kingdom of healing and love and rest starts to move out with his life and with his ministry, and then it takes this dark turn. Because when he finds himself in Jerusalem, of all places, he is captured, and atrocious, horrific war crimes are committed against him. He's strung up on a cross, which at that point in human history may have been the most creative and barbaric and inhumane way to execute and torture somebody. And as he is on the cross, he's crying out in agony. He's writhing. He's, what, what is he doing? He is, he's restless. He is experiencing personal, spiritual, cosmic restlessness. And you know why? Because the wrath and the judgment of God is being poured out on him. And you think, why him? Thought he was the good one. Why is he getting all of the wrath for the war crimes? Here's why. Because he's taking our place. He is experiencing God's wrath so that you and I would never have to. He is experiencing cosmic restlessness so that you might experience true, actual rest. He is experiencing the absence of God so that you might have access to the presence of God forever. You know, I was thinking about, that, about this this week, that when people buy houses, especially in this current market, um, it's, it's, you know, it's a normal custom to put down earnest money, which is this, you're, you're putting up this you know, sum of money to demonstrate to the seller that I'm serious about buying this. I'm going to give up all of this so that you know I'm not backing out. I'm committed to this deal. I'm going to see this thing through, and here's how you can know it, because I'm giving all this up. Unlike Zechariah's context, we, we have something that they didn't. We can look back and we can see what God was willing to give up. That he was willing to give up his own son to demonstrate, I am absolutely serious about seeing these promises through. You might get tastes of this in this life. You'll get tastes of my presence, tastes of my fullness, tastes of, of, of rest. But there is a day coming when all human history is going to crescendo towards this point where the whole world will be remade as if the new Jerusalem is going to come down. Everything will be restored, so much so that there won't even really need to be a temple in it because the presence of God will cover the whole planet. 
And there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more crying. In other words, rest, real rest. All of these promises begin in Jesus, and they're going to find their crescendo at the end. That's how you can believe him. But in between, now and then, the life of faith looks like struggle, suffering, wrestling, And as we do those things, as we wrestle, as we struggle, what do we do? We be honest. We behold who God really is. And we believe that he's going to make good on his promises because of the cross and the resurrection. That's the life of faith, and that's an invitation for you. Let me pray. Father, as we think about and dream about a day of rest that is coming, where we will be able to dwell with you fully and finally, I pray that you give us faith, give us confidence, give us courage to keep bringing our honest selves before you, to keep recalibrating our vision of who you are and your commitment to your people and your commitment to this world. And I pray that you give us faith to trust you. It is so easy to look around at the evidence in front of us and think this is, none of these promises are true. It's all make-believe. And yet I pray that you give us eyes of faith to trust you, knowing that you will make good on these promises, knowing that you already have, knowing that your kingdom has already come, and we look forward to it coming in its fullness. Help us, draw near to us, give us what we need. We pray all this in Jesus' name.